We are rapidly approaching the end of the book of James. Uh, and this morning we find ourselves in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Near the uh, end of this letter, the intended audience uh, shuffles around some. So if you'll remember from the last two weeks, at the end of chapter 4, James speaks to well-to-do Christians, those who are already Christians. They have some means, uh, but they are arrogantly making decisions about their lives and their futures without reference to God, as if the existence of God is inconsequential. Then at the beginning of chapter 5, he pivots to address rich non-Christians, and he really rebukes them for their abuses of wealth, both the ways that they obtain that wealth and the ways that they misuse it. In chapter 5, verse 7, he switches back to addressing Christians again. And you'll read here in just a few moments, he's referring to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And what James is going to do in this text is he's going to call his brothers and sisters in Christ to relentless patience in the midst of their suffering. So we're going to jump right into that this morning, and I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you, we wait all day long. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Uh, let's together this morning consider three things from this text. The source of relentless patience, examples of relentless patience, and the integrity of relentless patience. The source examples, and the integrity of relentless patience. So first, let's talk about the source, the source of relentless patience. When you are a victim of injustice, as some of you know full well, and many of you know much more than I do, patience is not our natural reaction. Instead, we tend to respond in one of two directions. Uh, we either become passive, uh, we accept defeat, we roll over and die as victims, or we retaliate, we fight, and we fight uh, to the extent that we repay evil for evil and return injustice for injustice. So you can imagine the impoverished Christians in these churches to whom James writes, each falling into one of those two camps. 
There are the ones who want to hide, and there are the ones who want to fight. But James, both by his example and by his charge to these men and women, shows us another way. Notice here, James is not shrinking back and hiding. He has just gotten done in the passage that we were in last week, the passage just immediately preceding this one, prophetically denouncing the injustices of the rich. But at the same time, nor is James taking vengeance, taking justice into his own hands. And at the moment where his oppressed readers would be most likely to do so themselves, he instead calls them to relentless patience. Now there is one and only one source for this kind of patience, and it's what James calls the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. What that Jesus is coming again to bring the consummation of the kingdom of God. It's this very kingdom that Jesus inaugurated when he came the first time. But there's a second coming, a second advent of Jesus. And whether you are aware of this or not, we actually anticipate this second coming at this table every week. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that when we eat this bread and drink from this cup, as we do those actions, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are proclaiming the person and the work of Jesus Christ until he comes. Throughout Scripture, and we certainly see this in the book of James, the coming of the Lord is what I like to refer to as our unexpected expectation. Our unexpected expectation. It's unexpected in that no one, including Jesus himself, knows the day or the hour that it will happen. That mystery belongs to God the Father alone. And to the rest of us, it will come, as the metaphor says throughout Scripture, like a thief in the night. But it's our expectation in that there is always an imminence and an urgency to it. And so the proper posture for God's people throughout history has been to watch and to wait to live uh, and to speak and to serve as though the fullness of God's kingdom is, as it says here in verse 8, at hand. Or verse 9, at the door. In other words, to put it simply, we are to live every moment of our lives as if Jesus is coming and if Jesus is coming soon. Now this has a, a thousand possible implications for our lives. If we would only believe it, that is if we would only believe it. But the longer the delay between promise and fulfillment, the more likely it is that this becomes for all of us merely a doctrinal belief instead of a functional one. And so I'm sure if we looked at this past week in each of our lives, there would be certain ways that we spent our time, certain ways that we spent our money, uh, ways we prioritized people and projects and tasks that would change if we really lived and if we were certain as though Jesus were coming back soon. In the midst of all the potential implications, where James goes with this is this, is here. Functional belief in the imminent return of Jesus, that's the only source of relentless patience. It's the only reality that will simultaneously compel us to prophetically cry out against injustice, while at the same time not taking justice into our own hands. Or to put it succinctly, the imminence of the return of Jesus, of the coming of the Lord, means that we can both warn and wait. Can I be blunt with you about something this morning? That if you don't believe this is the only source of relentless patience, 
If you don't believe that, it's probably because you've suffered relatively little in your life. The more horrific the injustice that we have experienced, the more inclined we are to take justice into our own hands. And therefore, the more confidence we really need that God is actually going to bring judgment against sin, that he's actually going to do something about injustice. Take it from someone who has suffered in his life a lot more than I have in mine. Before he was a Yale professor and theologian, a man named Miroslav Volf witnessed the atrocities of the Yugoslav Wars. And Miroslav Volf, a few years ago, wrote this. Imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. And here's this line that I love that is so applicable to many of us. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. So instead, because God will come to judge the living and the dead as we recite together in the Apostles' Creed, Victims of injustice can affirm what the Apostle Paul says in places like Romans 12, that vengeance belongs to God, that he will repay, and therefore we don't have to. Now this relentless patience, fueled by the coming of the Lord, also calls us into our own faithfulness. So we don't just pay attention to what Christ's return means for others, we pay attention to what it means for our own lives. And this is why James warns us not to grumble against one another immediately after he says this. Because another way that we are prone to respond when we're suffering is to turn on those who are closest to us, to lash out against our friends, to lash out against our allies with daggers of misdirected anger and frustration. Why do we do that? Because when you lose perspective of the true story of the world, you will inevitably feel backed into a corner. You will feel, when backed into that corner, that your only hope is to fight your own way out. And when you start to fight with that kind of perspective, you will take out just as many friends as you will foes. So I want to ask you this morning, how many of your broken relationships with other Christians, because I'm assuming that you have at least one or two broken relationships with other Christians, maybe even people in this room, How many of your broken relationships with other Christians are rooted in impatient suffering? Christians, it's in our suffering that we need each other most. But it's in our suffering that we are most likely to express all of these interpersonal relational sins that James has been highlighting throughout this letter. Not taming our tongue and cursing others made in the image of God. Having selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, fighting and quarreling with one another, speaking evil against one another, judging one another. Are not all of those things rooted in impatient suffering? Are not all of those things the result of living as though perhaps Jesus isn't coming? Perhaps I am on my own. Perhaps I do need to fight my own battles. James says here, 
He reminds us here, he declares here, the real judge is coming, and he's coming soon. He's standing at the door. And so James is saying, don't add, Christians, your own interpersonal sins to these sins that are being committed against you by non-Christians. In the sorrow, in the frustration, in the fatigue of your own suffering, don't lash out against one another. Instead, be relentlessly patient because the Lord is indeed coming. Second, James includes examples of relentless patience. What does relentless patience look like in practice? Are there any people who actually practice what James is talking about here? There are, and the three examples that James offers here each display relentless patience when confronted by a different dilemma. So for one, when confronted with circumstances where you lack control, look to the example of the farmer. We know from historical context and from other parts of this letter itself that many among James's original audience actually were farmers. So this example uh, would have connected, would have resonated deeply with the original recipients of this letter. I don't know a lot about farming. Uh, there are some here in this room that know far more than I do, so we'll rely on their expertise here. But here's what I do know. Farmers work hard. They are by no means uh, passive in their toil. But what control do they, do they have to actually make their crops grow? What control do they have over the weather, over the rain, or natural disasters? And so their ability to earn a wage, their ability to provide for a family, their very ability to live is so clearly dependent on circumstances that they cannot control. In truth, so are all of our lives. It's just that we don't recognize it every day. And for all of the benefits of life in the modern world, this is something that we have lost as we have moved away from an agrarian society to an industrialized and a technologically driven society. Now, I'm not signing up to go back there. There's, there's idealistic kind of visions I have in my mind about what that would be like, but I like a lot of the comforts of modern life. But with that shift has brought, that, that shift away from agrarian living into an industrialized and a technologically driven society has brought with it in direct proportion the illusion of control. And with the illusion of control comes what? Impatience. Impatience. The more that we think that we can control our lives and circumstances, the more we think we need never wait for anything. And so it's instant information and instant food and instant change in myself and instant change in others, instant gratification. And therefore, we find ourselves disoriented and surprised whenever we are in circumstances where we have no control over the outcome. So let's recalibrate this morning. The real surprise should be that we were ever delusional enough to think we had control in the first place. The real surprise should be that we thought we were ever in control. In, instead, like the farmer toils and then waits for the precious fruit of the earth, may we work hard, but remember how limited and dependent we really are. Today, when we close our service together, we're going to sing the words of Psalm 126. 
Psalm 126 borrows from these same agrarian metaphors and asks God for the strength to keep on sowing the seeds of his kingdom until the day that God will reap those seeds, that harvest. And so in light of James's call, sing those words today with an honest and a confident perspective that like the farmer, we will sow the seeds of the kingdom for the day that God will reap them. Second example from this passage in James. When grieved over the condition of God's people and when grieved over the gap between God's ideal and reality, look to the example of the prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament embodied the very thing uh, that James is calling his readers to in this passage. They spoke out against and they worked against injustice, but they did not take justice into their own hands. And what makes their example even more remarkable is that although they sometimes prophesied against pagan nations and pagan kings, they more often spoke out against the faithlessness of the people of God. They spoke out against the the tragic and hypocritical and wicked gaps that existed between God's ideal for his people and reality. Now, a little while ago, you heard Pastor John call you to pursue one another relationally. And as disciples of Jesus, who long to make other disciples of Jesus, to practice, among other things, the 55 one-anothering commands of the New Testament. Now, if you actually step into that, as I hope and pray that you will, you are going to find yourselves more frustrated with fellow Christians and not less. You're going to find yourself more aware of the gaps that exist between God's ideal and reality. And you're going to find yourself at times, if not often, burdened, beaten down, and cynical that God is actually at work and actually transforming at the heart level the other people that you are in relationship with. With the guidance of the Spirit of God, you're going to have to, in countless moments, discern where another person is in their life and what kind of counsel or what kind of care is most appropriate for them. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, you'll need to, at times, admonish those who are idle. There will be people who are idle and lazy, and they need to be admonished to get into the fight. You'll at other times need to not admonish people, but to encourage them because they're not idle and lazy. They're faint-hearted. They're weary, and they need to be encouraged. And even at other times, there are those who are weak, and they don't need either your admonishment or your encouragement. They need your help. They need you to actually step in and come alongside them and help them. But what Paul says next as an umbrella over all of it is that whatever kind of counsel or care is appropriate, be patient with them all. When you are grieved or frustrated over the condition of God's people or the gaps that exist in their lives, in those moments, the examples of the prophets will become that much more valuable to you. Why? Because you will need the very same steadfastness and the very same patience that the prophets displayed if you are going to weather the real-life, real-time experience of what it looks like for God to do his work in the life of another person. Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith as it's commonly known, speaks about these prophets that James is pointing to as an example here. And here's what's really helpful about Hebrews 11. Some of the prophets have these stories of amazing triumph and success 
As it says in Hebrews 11, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Triumph and success. But right after that, the author of Hebrews highlights the other stories of the prophets, the sad stories, the tragic stories stories. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging or even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Here's what's hopeful. It's not whether their story ended in triumph or tragedy that made the prophets an example to follow. It was their relentless patience and their endurance, irrespective of how people responded. So as we love and care for and disciple one another in this local church, may we display the same relentless patience with one another. The third example in James's letter is Job. When you're suffering unspeakable personal affliction, look to the example of Job. If you're familiar uh, with the Bible, if you grew up in the church or around Sunday school, you're perhaps familiar with the story of Job, or at least the beginning and the end of it. Uh, his is a story of incredible affliction. He loses all of his children, all of his wealth in a matter of hours. But he's held up here as an example of steadfastness in the midst of his affliction. So think about that. If you've actually read the entire book of Job, not just the beginning and the end, it's incredibly encouraging that he is the example of steadfastness, of relentless patience in suffering. Why? Why is that encouraging? Because Job doubted. He wrestled. He grumbled. He arrogantly insisted on getting answers from God. One scholar, scholar puts it this way, Job's is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied. But the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. This is the relentless part of relentless patience. It's not for Christians a patience that's like a feigned piety that pretends that we're happy with our circumstances all the time. It's one that engages the doubt. It's one that engages the frustration, engages that sense of unfairness, even from God himself, in order to more deeply believe that God is actually there and working in the midst of it. And it's this steadfast example of Job that is held up by James for us to follow. And so when you are confronted with lack of control in your circumstances, look to the relentless patience of the farmer. When confronted with the slowness of change or the lack of receptivity among God's people, look to the relentless patience of the prophet. And when suffering unspeakable personal affliction, look to the relentless patience of Job. As the book of Romans says, these things were written down for our instruction they were written down for our benefit, for our good. These are our examples for us to look at of real human beings and to follow the relentless patience that they themselves embodied.
So we've talked about the source of relentless patience and examples of it. Lastly, let's talk about the integrity of relentless patience. Verse 12, chapter 5, is another one of these verses in James that at first glance feels like a, a random addendum. Above all, my brothers, don't swear by heaven or earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now this could really be its own separate sermon, but James's point here is that our word should be enough, that we should be people who don't have to invoke oaths, we don't have to swear by God or swear by heaven or swear by anything, but that our yeses are yes and our noes are no, in effect, that they are just as official and binding as the most official legal documentation. What does that have to do with relentless patience? Both are matters of integrity. Both are matters of integrity. When our yes is yes and our no is no, that means that we are people of verbal integrity. And when we suffer with relentless patience, we are people of gospel integrity. See, as God's people in the world, not only is relentless patience consistent with our anticipated future of Christ's second coming, relentless patience is consistent with our realized past and our present experience, namely, that if you are a Christian, the patience of God is your salvation. So far this morning, we've primarily talked about injustices that are committed against us by other people. What about the injustices that you and I commit? And we've talked about the frustration that we might experience when we see gaps in other people's lives between God's ideal and reality. What about the gaps in your own life? Men and women, God has been relentlessly patient with you and with me. I used to read the gospel accounts and I would look at Peter and I would look at the other apostles and I would think, man, Peter is such an idiot. He just doesn't get it. Jesus is right there in front of them for, all, for these three years and all these examples, and he just doesn't understand. And then one day, an embarrassingly long time after I first started reading the Bible, long after I think I should have gotten this, it hit me. God help me, that's me. Like I am Peter. I am him. I've had the beauty and the truth of God held out to me in countless ways over the course of my life, and still I turn away. And still I choose my own way. Friends, not only have we heard of the steadfastness of Job, we have heard of the steadfastness of God himself. We have seen it. We have tasted his compassion and mercy nowhere greater than the, than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for 2,000 years since, as the steadfastness and faithfulness of humanity waxes and wanes, we have only seen more and more of the compassion and mercy of the Lord in his patience with us. Now, in your own suffering and in those moments when you are suffering greatly in your own life, you might disagree. And you might say, as many Christians throughout the ages have said, and it's good and right to cry out to God, how long, how long, O Lord? Why the delay? Why the 2,000-year gap? For all the suffering the people of God have had to endure and continue to endure in the world, why hasn't Jesus returned already to make all things new? 
The answer is because he is patient. 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But, verse 15 of 2 Peter 3, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The answer why God delays is you and me. God delays for you and me and for others just like you and me. And therefore, when you suffer injustice, when you have zero control over your life and your circumstances, when you suffer unspeakable personal affliction, connect your suffering to the patience of God. The reason that Jesus hasn't returned yet is because in his mercy, God desires that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And therefore, living this life, suffering in this life with relentless patience is the ultimate expression of gospel integrity. It is to embody the very patience that is our salvation. So friends, establish your hearts. Stand firm and remain relentlessly patient in your suffering. The coming of the Lord, as James says, as it says throughout the New Testament, the coming of the Lord is at hand and may he come soon. But for every second he delays, may you experience that delay as one more second of his patient mercy for you and for others. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have in Christ demonstrated relentless patience with stubborn and slow and fickle and weak and idle people like me and like the men and women seated in this room. And we're grateful to you for that patience. It is our salvation It is the reason that we can gather with confidence of your love and your grace toward us because you have been patient with us. And I pray that we all would embody that very same relentless patience in our lives and particularly in our suffering, in these moments when we're prone to take justice into our own hands or just to try to disappear and hide, where we're prone to lash out against one another and grumble against one another. I pray that instead of all of those things, we would look upon what we celebrate now at this table, the finished work of Jesus, and see the clearest example of your relentless patience toward us and that we would follow that example, not only of the farmer, not only of the prophet, not only of Job, but of you yourself, God, that we would embody your own relentless patience in our lives and with others. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.